Our study this morning is in the book of the Psalms, and we're going to study just two short passages this morning. We'll head over to 1 Corinthians, the end, but let's start this morning. Our main text is Psalm 112, but let's start in Psalm 119. Throughout the Psalms and Proverbs, there are a lot of uh, direct uh, teachings and direct comparisons between those who live righteously and those who don't live righteously. And there are a lot of different metaphors that the Bible gives um, about the differences and what that looks like and how this is shown uh, in many ways. And one of the one of the most profound insights, one of the ones that's used the most prominently, is when the Bible talks about the metaphor of the heart, what our heart is like. Now, our mind is what holds our convictions. Our mind is where we form logic and we rationalize and we think and we ponder on uh, what we believe. But our heart is what expresses and executes those convictions. It's where, it's where what we believe is carried out. And we're not talking about the organ that pumps blood. We're not talking about what circulates life throughout our body. We're talking about the spiritual heart. We're talking about the metaphorical heart. And the Bible defines that as our soul. It's the seat of our conscience. It's the seat of our character. It's where our emotions and passions reside. So it's it's kind of who we are. The mind is our brain, but the heart really makes up who we are. And the Bible talks many times about the heart. As I looked at, at the list of verses that talk about the heart, I got overwhelmed and thought, there's no way. How do we how do we possibly explain this uh, or study this in one study? And the Lord kind of focused me on, on this one thought uh, here from Psalm 112. But think about it this morning. If we describe the heart as the seed of your convictions and, and conscience and character and your passion and emotions, if we could do a spiritual EKG, if we could do a spiritual test on your heart, what would it reveal? Would it reveal a heart that's healthy? Would it reveal a heart that is full of biblical conviction, that's strong for the Lord, that's standing for God, or would it show weakness? Would there be a, a, a fibrillation a little bit? Would there be some sort of disease and some sort of, of kind of a problem there? Is there plaque that's kind of filling the cavities of our spiritual life? What would we see? What would your heart look like this morning? What would my heart look like this morning? Now, usually it doesn't take a test uh, to reveal what's going on in somebody's heart. We think we hide it fairly well, but usually when somebody is not yielded to the Spirit and they're not conformed to Christ, it bears itself out in attitude, in behavior, and in a lack of humility. There's an edge that comes with sin. There's a, there's a, 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 just a rub. There's an attitude there that, that when sin is there, because sin is based on pride, that it creates kind of a different mindset. And the heart is very susceptible to this because the heart is not as logical. It's not as rational as the mind. It is more emotional. And our emotions get involved, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. But, but what tends to happen as our mind thinks through a decision is our heart tends to argue for short, short-term decisions. It tends to argue for the here and now, for what will make us feel good, for what is emotionally fulfilling. Uh, and, and it doesn't always, uh, it's not always reliable in its judgment. 
You think about the rational decisions that you have to make this week and how you have to look at the facts, look at the numbers, look at the the circumstances, and you have to come up to the best decision. But as you're doing that, your heart is going, what about this? What about this? What about this? What about this? You like that? That sounds good. So, So the heart and the mind work together, but in some senses they even work independently because the mind is logical and the heart is emotional. And because it is, it's very easily swayed. It easily will will kind of look for what is attractive and what brings the most pleasure now rather than what is biblically rational and what is wise and insightful from the Lord. Now, because of that, here's our passage this morning, Psalm 119. The Bible calls us to guard our hearts. And the Bible tells us to maintain a position of, of strength and stability to counter any tendency that our heart has to drift away from the Lord. And that's really what we're going to focus on this morning, starting with a couple of verses here in Psalm 119. And these are familiar verses, especially verse 11. But the two verses that precede verse 11, verses 9 and 10, show us why verse 11 is given. Verse 11 tells us to hide the word in our heart. But let's see why we have to do that. Look at verse 9, Psalm 119. How can a young man keep his way pure? Think about that question, because that's the attack on you this week. It's the attack on me this week. How do we keep ourselves pure? By keeping according to the word, with all my heart I've sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word have I treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Now, the sin that's described in verse 11 is explained in verse 10. And the sin in this case is is wandering away from the Lord. So this is the temptation to the believer. Start in verse 9. The temptation to the believer is to stop being pure. We see that that results from not wanting to live according to the word and not wanting to persist in prayer. So purity is attacked by saying the word of God doesn't matter. The word of God doesn't apply to you. It's not something you have to obey, obey completely. It's optional. It's a guideline. It, it's good for you, but but this is not exactly how you have to live. That's the first attack. The second attack you see is to not continue to persist in prayer. Now, when those two things happen, we stop being pure. Then you get to verse 10. Then we start to drift away from the Lord. And this is so common because our heart loves to wander. And there are a thousand different reasons why we choose to wander. But there is, there is just such a need to come back to the basics and come back to what God tells us here about trusting in him and treasuring his word. And here's why Christ did what he did. Here's why we have this table before us this morning. Because God has given us the power now because of Christ and because he gives us the Holy Spirit to indwell us. God has now given us the power and the discipline and the desire not to drift. But the tendency that's going to hit all of us this week, the appeal that's going to hit all of us this week is to drift away from the Lord in some way, whether it's toward being holy, whether it's toward trusting him, whether it's toward studying his word or praying or not wanting to fellowship or not wanting to worship the way we know we should be worshiping, but we're just hesitant. And there's just some, that that's going to be the tendency at all times. And yet, when you go back a page, go back to chapter 112, 
what the Lord's going to tell us here, we read in a second, is this is how our lives should be defined. As I studied through this chapter this week, I kept coming back to the thought is uh, that this is how I should look. This is how a believer should look. This is what should define and characterize my life. And there's no alternative. There's no other option. There's no no latitude here. There's no, well, that's nice and that's a great thought. If I could get to there someday, that would be awesome. But but I, I this is not me yet. No, there's no option. For a believer, we should look like Psalm 112. Our reputation should be this. Read it. Praise the Lord. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord who greatly delights in his commandments. His descendants will be mighty on earth. The generations of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his home, and his righteousness endures forever. Light arises in the darkness for the upright. He's gracious and compassionate and righteous. It is well with the man who is gracious and lends. He will maintain his cause in judgment, for he will never be shaken. The righteous will be remembered forever. He will not fear evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is upheld. He will not fear until he looks with satisfaction on his adversaries. He's given freely to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted in honor. The wicked will see it and will be vexed. He will gnash his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked will perish. Now, that right there, we just read those ten verses should describe us. Those 10 verses should describe me. I've been saved 40 years this summer. Those verses should describe me. You keep noticing, as you read, the word righteousness, righteousness, righteousness. Now, the great thing about a text like this is we can just take it apart line by line, and we're not going to look at every single line. We're not going to exegete at all. But but you can go through verse by verse and be strengthened by the word of God. And you can be challenged by the Holy Spirit of what he's telling us here and how he wants us to live. So let's just start. Just go through it. Take some notes or write in your Bible or interact with the text in some way. Now, don't just don't just stare at me because I get really insecure. In verse 1, we see that blessing is defined and blessing is given by how we fear the Lord and how we greatly delight in his commandments. So blessing, God gives blessing, and blessing is defined in our lives by how well we fear the Lord and how much we delight in his commandments. Now, the world tells us, culture tells us, that the word of God's too hard. Culture tells us that this is an impossible standard, that this is too onerous, that that there's too much here, that God can't possibly expect us to live by these standards because look at our culture. We have to adapt. We have to change. We have to compromise. We can't possibly take this kind of biblical position because that's going to put people off and because there's no way in 2014 that any sane person can live by the word of God. And that's a lie. That's a lie. This is our calling to not only live by the word of God, but to greatly 
delight in it. Now, why do we do that? Because it's the wise way to live. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, as we start to really respect and honor and stand in awe of God who gave himself for us, that that's the starting point for us really understanding how to live. It gives us an understanding of why God would create us and love us. Why Christ would come down and die for us. Why God would give us his Holy Spirit after he transforms us and change our lives forever. Why he would secure us in heaven. The fear of the Lord is the start of understanding that. And that's a very underrated spiritual principle. That we can't let go by us because if we just jumped in the nest verse, we're going to miss this. We've got to read this verse again. We are abundantly blessed by fearing and honoring the Lord and by greatly delighting in his commands. Now, that's a promise. And if we choose to live that way this week, instead of yielding to our pride and yielding to our will and believing the the false temporary lies of the world, we're going to experience the hand of the Lord like we never have before. And then... Look at the personal impact once we do that in verse 2. It says that those who live this way as God's children will become mighty on earth. Now, the word there isn't what we would think. The word is not powerful and influential and strong and everybody looks to me because I'm so mighty. It's not the meaning of the word. The word in the text means spiritually strong and brave. So the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, and delighting in the commands of Lord, that makes us spiritually strong and courageous and brave. And as we do that, look at the rest of the verse, it says we will blessed, be blessed down through the generations. Now, if you're a parent of kids, let's say, less than 12 this morning, isn't your greatest desire that the Lord will put his hand on their lives and that as they become teenagers and adults and, and, and they start to get married and they start to give his grandchildren that God will bless them and that they'll remain so close, Lord? Isn't that a great desire that you have as a believer? Not that your kids will drift and wander and experiment and try all sorts of stuff and get involved in bad relationships and, and do all kinds. Not that. Our desire for our kids is that they will delight in the Lord. And if you have older kids this morning and they delight that they're, and and they're walking with the Lord, you're delighted by that. And if they're not walking by the Lord, that's your fervent cry to God. Lord, bring them back to you. Bring them back to you. But whatever our kids age this morning, they need to see us, look at verse two, being strong and courageous for the Lord. They need to see us standing for biblical convictions. They need to see us setting apart ourselves in the world. They need to see us telling people about the hope of the gospel. If they're not seeing it in us, how can we expect them to be doing that? Train a child in the way that they should go. When they're old, they won't depart from it. That never stops as a parent. My parents are 80. They still are training me. Not because I'm incompetent or immature, but because that's what a parent does. You keep training, you keep educating, you keep talking about faith in God, you keep encouraging and strengthening, and that's our role as parents. And look what happens. This is a promise of God, and we do this in verse 2. It says that as we do this, we'll become spiritually strong and brave, and it'll go down through the generations. But if we don't do that, Culture is barraging them with the message of immorality and compromise. 
if we stand firm, the difference between holiness and righteousness and, and, and what is going on in the world and the deception will become very stark. Somebody said to me this week, the shelf life of popularity is very short. And if you need two names that describe that, Justin Bieber and Miley Cyrus. The shelf life on, wow, aren't they cute? Aren't they talented? Boy, we should give them money to what a disgrace. How quickly has that happened? This is the deception of the enemy. Oh, you think that's the way to live? Boom. And God says, if we will live holy lives, it will be a stark contrast to that. And our kids will look at that and they'll say, that's not the way to live. How you're living is the way to live. Oh, parents, if we do that, we are so successful because the enemy is going to promote these people as worthy of attention. But their rise and fall, look back at verses 1 and 2, their rise and fall is illustrated here. Look at verse 3. It says, the righteous will remain forever. That's not bragging. That's not arrogance. That's not, well, look at us. We're righteous. We remain forever and you don't. We're not mocking this morning. This is an awesome promise of God. Mankind loves to promote wealth and loves to pursue riches and loves to go after things that are temporary and unstable. But the word says here, those who love the Lord and his word and his ways experience eternal joy. Notice in verse 4 that that doesn't mean arrogance or condescension or judgmental attitudes. Instead, we're to be marked by graciousness and compassion and righteousness Every day. In other words, fearing the Lord and having the blessing of God doesn't then give us a right to go around and judge everybody. If God wants to judge people's sin, guess what? He'll do it. He doesn't need our help. And if God wants to pay back and get revenge on those that have cursed and defied his name, he will do it. It's up to him. He's the righteous judge. I'm not. So what are we supposed to do? Look at the text. It says we are supposed to be gracious and compassionate and righteous. Jesus says you're to love your enemies and you're to pray for those who persecute you in order to win them to the hope of the gospel. Think about how much it would diffuse the criticism of Christians as judgmental and harsh if we loved and showed compassion and lived righteously and prayed for people instead of pointing our fingers at them and saying, look how awful it is. It should break our hearts what's happened to those two individuals I mentioned earlier because they're not walking with God. They've both heard about the Lord in their lives, but they're not walking with God. And what a horrible example they're setting for so many kids. Live righteously. Look at verse 5. Starts to draw us to our theme. Verse 5 says, It was well with the man that is gracious and lends, for he will maintain his cause and judgment, for he will never be shaken. The righteous will be remembered forever. Again, this is a promise. Verse 6 is one that I believe we would love to have realized in our lives, especially as the world becomes so much more volatile and especially as we feel this instability financially and and geopolitically and, and with everything that's going on in the world. How can a jet be missing for a week? The volatility, the instability, the uncertainty 
of our world this morning. Everything feels fragile and it's not getting better. So how do we deal with that? What do we do as Christians? Because if we get caught up in this, we'll start to have our faith undermined. So look at what he says in verse 6. He says, the righteous man, the one who lives completely for the Lord, will never be shaken. There is absolutely zero equivocation in that promise. And I kept sitting with that verse going, Lord, how can that be? Well, for one thing, I'm not fully righteous yet. So I am still shaken by things. I am still worried and fearful and concerned. But he says, look, if you are righteous, you will never be shaken. The word there means to totter and to slip and to slide. At its core, it means to be dislodged. And as I thought about that word, I thought about Carl Walenda. Carl Walenda was a great tightrope walker who came from a, a family of tightrope walkers. In 1978, they strung a wire between two buildings in San Juan, Puerto Rico. He was 73 at the time. Ten stories up, no net, no uh, line from his back to the wire. If he fell, he fell. His family said, the conditions aren't good. Don't go out there. I'll never forget watching on a wide world of sports. You remember that on Saturdays? And they showed Carl Walenda in Puerto Rico, and he was up on the wire. And as he got up there, a gust of wind hit him, and he kind of he kind of tottered. He he did what this verse is saying. He was shaken. And he stood there, and he kind of tried to steady himself with the pole. And then, because I guess of his age, and because of the uh, the condition of the wind, and, and they found out later that the wire had not been strung well. And he kind of stood there and then he started to fall and he tried to grab the wire. He missed the wire. He fell 10 stories to his death. He had years of experience. But in that moment, he was shaking by something small. His family said, don't go out. He said, I'm fine. It'll be good. He had confidence in himself. He had confidence in something that wasn't stable and it cost him. So what does it tell us? It says the righteous person never experiences that. The righteous person is not shaken. Why? Because of verse seven, he will not fear evil tidings. And here's the secret. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. The way to have a steadfast, unshakable, unmovable faith and trust in the Lord is to go completely into his presence and to trust him. Now, don't let your mind drift, okay? This is so simple. This is so elementary that we may miss it because we say, how many times have we studied this? You need to trust the Lord. No, this is very key. Proverbs 3 says, trust in the Lord with how much of your heart? Tell me. All your heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. So let's interpret that. Let's let's break that apart and describe what that means. It means trust can never be partial. Trust can never reserve something and say, well, I'll give the Lord my faith, but... I'm going to hold on to a little bit of it because I, 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 I need to have a little bit of control or I've got to see some proof that my trust is worth it before I'll give everything to him. So, Lord, you better show me a sign. Jesus said a wicked generation seeks a sign. 
So, Lord, I'm going to I'm just going to hold a little bit back. And, and you know what? When I understand what you're doing or I can rationalize it or I agree with it, then I will trust you. But you're going to have to kind of prove yourself a little bit and you're going to have to show me why I need to trust you. And he says, I showed you why you need to trust me. I showed you Christ died on the cross. Christ rose again. That's all you need. So trust can't be held back. It can't be partial. And that's a very important spiritual principle because our whole heart has to be engaged in trusting the Lord. He uses the word heart in Proverbs 3, 5 because everything, our emotions, our soul, our, our, our desire must be in total agreement that giving our faith completely to the Lord is the only way to live. There can be nothing held back Nothing in reserve. And here's what he says once we do that. Look back at the verse. He says, once you do that, your heart will be steadfast. Your heart will be locked. Your heart will be fixed. It will be firm and stable and established. And I don't know about you, but that sounds real appealing to me in the wake of all that's going on in the world this morning. If there's one thing we can have that's steady and firm and established, it's a heart for the Lord. Listen, it's so easy for our head to get messed up and for us to be caught up in fear and worry and anxiety trying to find some kind of security. But look back at verse 8. He says his heart is upheld and he will not fear. That's a position of strength and wisdom. And I found in my life, four decades with the Lord and I found in doing ministry and counseling people that spiritual drift happens when we stop trusting completely in the Lord and we start trying to figure it out ourselves. Now, why would we do that? Let's get a couple reasons and make this practical and pray. Why would we drift from the Lord? I think there are three compelling reasons this morning why we might be inclined to wander away from the Lord. Okay, write these down. Look at these. Pray through these this week. Think about how this is true of your own life. Number one, we are secretly jealous of people who don't obey the Lord. We are secretly jealous of people who don't obey the Lord. We look at them and we think that they're having more fun, that they're more free, that they're more fulfilled, that they are uh, doing something that we're missing out on. And while we know we're supposed to love the Lord and while we come to church and we serve and we read our Bibles and we pray and we give and we worship, secretly there's a little part of us that thinks, I am missing out. And here's where the devil blinds us. He tells us that that is good, that those actions are, are wonderful, but he never lets us know that they're not wise. We know it. We know it in our heads, but our heart yearns for it. It's like my dad told me. My dad uh, was a smoker when he was a kid, like 15. He was kind of like a juvenile delinquent. I could, I'd say that if he's in the room because it was true. He was smoking two to three packs a day. He was in trouble uh, with the law. I mean, he's just kind of a truant. His parents sent him to military school because, honestly, that was the last hope. And he says to me, every once in a while, when I smell a cigarette, I still want to smoke. He's 81. He hasn't smoked in 56 years. No, excuse me, 66 years. It's a long time. But that's the lure of sin. Pulling you back in, it it, it has that, you kind of sniff it and you go, 
Oh, I'm missing out. And that's what sin does. That's what culture does. Look at advertising. Look at the way sin appeals to us. You're missing out. You're not the life of the party. Who are you? Why don't you have any friends? Why why do you go to that church? Why do you study the Bible? Come on. You're missing out. What it never tells us is it's not wise. And as believers, we need to be wise. Proverbs 23 says, don't let your heart envy sinners but live in the fear of the Lord always. There's a future and your hope will not be cut off. Listen, my son, be wise. Direct your heart in the way. In other words, we have the responsibility and the discipline to govern our choices so that we don't chase after what is unwise and what's detrimental to our walk. So we have to look at that and say, Yeah, it does. The world presents itself well, like sin's really attractive and that I'm missing out. But it is not wise. And if I follow after that, I'm going to drift. Second reason. Why would we wander? Second, our emotions and feelings demand to be recognized and fed. Our emotions and feelings demand to be recognized and fed. Our emotions and feelings are powerful, unstable, selfish control freaks. Our emotions, our feelings, oh, it's all about, and I just, I want to do this. It's all about us, and it has a lot of needs. And this is the first area of attack and the first area of concession when it comes to temptation, because our emotions and feelings are the least likely areas to be patient and to analyze the impact of giving in. And here's what happens. We start to interpret wants as needs. You ever been with a little kid at Toys R Us when they're about six? Oh, I need that. I need that. I need that. I need that. Like your life will never be complete if you own, don't own TJ, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Like, like you cannot actually experience joy in life when you're 40 if you didn't have that as a kid. I need that. And here's the appeal that the devil tries to put on us. You need that when reality is you want that. And then we start to feel restricted by the Lord. Well, Paul, you say that I've got to live by the word, but the Lord, the word is really tight and it's and it's very specific. And you know what? There are things I I do want and there are things I do need and God's not providing based on my want. And then in our spiritual immaturity, we start to say, well, God's not being faithful and God's not helping me and God's not blessing me. And then we start to sacrifice our conviction for the basis of temporary pleasure. If you and I analyze the decisions we made this week and the sin we committed, I will guarantee you that probably 98 to 99% of the decisions that we made that contradicted our convictions and compromised holiness were based on our emotions and feelings. We didn't pray. We didn't study. We didn't cry out to God. We didn't say, Lord, help me. I'm being tempted now. I need to get out of this. Help me. Instead, we just followed after our emotions. And we followed after what felt right. And this is really an area of our lives where we need to be disciplined. How we respond verbally when somebody annoys us. The Bible says be swift to speak, uh, swift to hear and slow to speak. How many times this week did we sin because we were swift to speak? Because our emotions got riled up and we got ticked off, right? Anybody else feel this this week? I got ticked off this week. And I was angry and I didn't respond well. And I was frustrated 
because my emotions were charged and my feelings were hurt and I was irritated and I wasn't swift to hear. I was swift to say. And then it applies to temptation. You ever notice with temptation how it tells us be impulsive now? Don't think through it. Listen, temptation never says, you know what you need to do? You need to sit down for five hours with the Lord and ask him if this is right. Anybody ever been tempted that way? I've never in my life been tempted that way. You know what, Paul? Before you commit this sin, before you react in anger at the person that just hurt your feelings, why don't you settle down, read your Bible for a little bit, seek the Holy Spirit and see if that's right, and then come back to the person in two hours and say what you want to say. Temptation demands now. Be impulsive. Get it out. Come on. It's going to feel good, right? It's going to feel good to do that. It's going to, it's going to gratify you. There's no thoughtfulness to it. And we need to really sit back and assess what is the long-term impact of what I'm about to do. And am I seeking the Lord? Am I saying to the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, help me? Because he says there's always a way of escape. I'll never fail you on that. You ask for my help, I will dissuade you from sin. This has become more acute in my life as I've gotten older in the Lord that when I say, Lord, help me, when I'm being tempted, God makes it so abundantly clear. There's the way out right there. But are we asking? What's the third reason we wander? i got to finish. It's uncertainty. Why would we drift the Lord? Because we hate uncertainty. And when you walk by faith, there's a degree of uncertainty. And you know what? We don't like it. And we look for any way to avoid it and escape it. So it seems very counterintuitive of us as children of God that in times of uncertainty that we don't immediately run to the maker of heaven and earth, the one who made us in his image, the one who sacrificed for us, the one who knows all things, the one who loves us and cares for us and calls us his own children. Why in times of uncertainty do we get panicked and fearful and anxious instead of running to him? And then when we don't run to him, what happens? We get irritated. We get frustrated. We question his interest. We doubt his care and his provision. And somehow, listen now, we feel unfair that he's left us in the dark. And here's where our emotions and our feelings jump right back in with great persuasiveness and say, you are such a sucker. God is not going to help you. God is not going to provide for you. You better start making some provisions. You better start having some fear because it's not going to work out. And God is holding back information because he doesn't want you to know. You know how we respond to that? With Isaiah 26.3. It says, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is set on you. Anybody like perfect peace this week? You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is fixed on you. You know how you can tell when sin is present? Because there's little to no peace. Anytime there's a lack of peace, there's something wrong. There is a reciprocal relationship between holiness and trust 
and peace. And there's also a reciprocal relationship between sin and doubt and turmoil. But the Bible says when your heart is completely fixed on the Lord, he will give you a peace that is perfect and is fully sufficient. Now, do you believe that this week? Do we believe that this week? Do we believe it enough that when circumstances come that rock us this week, that we won't be overwhelmed by it? Over and over again, I've seen this principle reinforced in my own life, that when I come to a point of doubt or a point of uncertainty, that God says no doubt, no uncertainty is 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 allowed here. You have to trust in me with everything that you have. It is the only way you will be blessed, and you cannot move off of that position. Look at one more verse. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 15. Let's conclude with this. Because here's the calling that we have this week. Here's the calling that we have of how we're supposed to live. As we face temptation and we face uncertainty and we face all kinds of problems in the world and and our emotions are getting all worked up and our feelings are getting all uptight and we're all a bundle of just problems. Here's what the Bible tells us. We need to memorize this verse this week. How many will memorize this verse this week? This is not hard. It's four lines. I'm telling you, this verse will just give you strength. It will stoke your faith. It'll, it'll keep you from drifting away from the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil or labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now, Paul uses three great active verbs. The first verb is steadfast. It's the same concept as Psalm 112. It means to be firm and stable. So he says, be firm and stable in the Lord. Then we see the third word that says, our calling is to always abound in the work of the Lord. In other words, Don't just do a little and get by. Passionately give yourself completely to holiness and completely to serving the Lord daily. So we're called to be steadfast, firm, secure in the Lord. We're supposed to always abound in the work of the Lord, trusting in him, living in holiness, and and serving him. And then we've got this beautiful little word in the middle. I love this word. It's the word immovable. It means you can not be moved. It's the Greek word, and I'm going to mispronounce this, metakinetos. The only reason I give you the Greek word this morning is because it has the root word kinetos, from which we get the word kinetics. Kinetics is the study of motion. But there's a second word that comes out of this word, and it's the word cinema. In the 1860s, a man named William Lincoln developed the first device where he attached photographs one after another on what he called the wheel of life. And when you would spin the wheel of life, all the pictures would start to move together and blend together, and you would see motion. Then in 1895, a man named Louis Lemire was the first to take what William Lincoln had done and to project that through a device into a theater. And then in 19. 28, Walt Disney was the first one to take the moving picture and to synchronize sound to it. Now, why do I tell you all that? 
The point is, they took images, they took pictures, and they created realities by putting them in motion. And by putting them in motion, it changed perception. Think about today. Almost every movie that's made now uses some kind of computer graphics. It's called CGI. And they use a green screen and they develop things. And they, they'll do, you know, the world war is happening. And it's all through computer graphics. What is that doing? It's changing perception. It's putting images in motion that cause us to have a different reality. Now, look back at the verse because we're done. This is what the enemy tries to do to us. To try to get us to distrust and disobey the Lord. He starts to move the circumstances around and sin starts to appeal to us and our perception becomes altered and we start to see things that aren't necessarily there because the pictures are in motion and the circumstances are churning and we start to get fearful and we start to say, what about this? And this seems to be my reality and this is maybe what's really going on. And at that point, we have two choices. One is to allow doubt and fear to control us and the other one is to do what verse 58 says. It's to be steadfast and immovable in our faith. The first will cause us to drift. The second will cause us to be confident in God's provision. Listen, we need to catch ourselves. We need to say, look, there there are some things that are drifting right now. There are some areas where I'm moving away from the Lord and the strength and security of my heart is at stake because my heart is inclined to be moved and to be uptight and to be churning. But the Bible's telling me I'm supposed to be steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord. There's a constant disease that's threatening us. Our heart is constantly under attack, and we have to fight it. We have to remain steadfast and immovable. What's moving you this morning? What's causing you to drift? What's causing you to to just kind of slide away from the Lord? Ecclesiastes says, a wise man's heart directs him to the right, but a foolish man's heart directs him to the left. Which way is your heart going this morning? Do you fear the Lord? Do you greatly delight in his commandments? Is your heart, I mean, your heart is steadfast. You're not going to be moved away from trusting the Lord. No matter what circumstances the enemy throws at you, no matter what perception you might have about how things are changing, you are going to trust in the Lord. Let's ask God to help us. Close your eyes. Lord, so many things things threaten our security and so many things attack our heart and mind. Telling us that we should not trust, telling us that we should not listen to your word. Telling us that you're not faithful. Lord, this morning, there are things in our lives, in each individual's life this morning, in our hearts, that are telling us, drift away from the Lord. And Lord, I pray that you would convict us of those things, that you'd show us of those things by your spirit this morning, and that we would put an end to those, that we would not allow those things to affect us, but Lord, that we would be steadfast and immovable 
Lord, give me an immovable heart this morning. A heart that never fails to trust in you. A heart that never doubts. A heart that recognizes that your commandments are perfect. A heart that doesn't listen to the lie of the enemy. A heart that is not dissuaded. Lord, I pray that for myself this morning and I pray that for this congregation. Right now, Lord, we know that the enemy is fighting. He's trying to convince otherwise, but Lord, defeat him again. May our hearts be soft and sensitive to you. Because, Lord, that's the only way we're going to be able to manage through this time until you return or until we come to meet you. And, Lord, we thank you this morning for the assurance of that. As believers, you have changed our lives forever, and we praise you and exalt you for that this morning. Lord, it's been a blessing to be in your house and to remember the work of Christ and to praise you and to give and to pray and to study your word. Now, Lord, we have to go live. We have to go out and live out what we have learned. You give us all power and all strength and all discipline to go and do that. So, Lord, give us a steadfast, immovable heart this week, we pray. And we will praise you and we will tell other people how good your grace is. We love you and we praise you this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen.